You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So this morning, we're going to pick up where we left off, and I want to invite you to Nehemiah chapter 2. Don't be afraid of the table of contents, uh, especially if this is one of the first times you've opened the Bible, then I want to commend you and say thank you. Uh, there's, a, there's a truth in Scripture here that's pretty profound for us, is that there are treasures that are infinite, timeless, that are, that are available to the person who opens the Bible for the first time, that are available to the person who maybe opens the Bible for the 10,000th time. So we, we want to dive in and, and begin to let it, as, as we say, not just something that we open, but we let it open us. Uh, we, we resist the temptation in a room like this to kind of sit back and be spectators and somehow entertained by a person on a stage with a Bible, but instead we are shaped by, we are formed by what happens when we encounter what we, what we experience as God, the creator of the universe, speaking to us. So up to this point in the story of the Bible, God has delivered his people and they rebel against him. God has sustained his people, blessed him, or blessed them, given them the, uh, a promised land and a, a promised purpose, and they rebel against him again. They're, they're punished or indisciplined in exile. And, and this we see God giving them yet another chance to experience his forgiveness and grace and mercy. That's important for us because every time we open the scripture, every time we, we turn to the Lord, we're invited to do the same to get another chance to get an experience of God's grace. And the story of Ezra and Nehemiah is the, a second exodus, a second deliverance from bondage, a second deliverance from exile, although smaller and, and even described as a remnant, a, a, maybe in many ways kind of a, a miniature version of the first exodus. But they're, they're by, my, by miraculous means, allowed to return to Jerusalem after it had burned some decades before, and then begin to, as we saw in Ezra, rebuild the altar where they would sacrifice and meet with God, rebuild the temple where they would experience the presence of God. And then we, in Nehemiah, we see here the rebuilding of the city and its walls. In the first six chapters, we'll, we'll see, that we find ourselves in chapter two, a series of events that, that God uses Nehemiah and the people to rebuild the people of Israel. But then you'll see, uh, beginning in chapter seven and beyond, the way that God begins to reform those people that have been rebuilt and restored. So the question I've been asking since we began this series is this, where do you currently want or need to experience renewal? On one hand, I want that to be a question and even its answer that will serve as a marker for this time period and this season for years to come. That you might look back on this time and if someone asks you about it, maybe you'll have some circumstances to relay, right? But even more so, you'll say, that was the time when the Lord met with me and restored fill in the blank. I want you to take this question seriously, and even seriously enough that if you're so bold, would you share that with someone you know? For us as a church, would you share that with people in your gospel community? I want you to do so knowing that the Lord actually delights to give you this. And the story of Ezra and Nehemiah is evidence. The Lord delights to bring his people back to him. The Lord delights to bring life where there once was death. And so in the places where maybe right now your life is marked by discontentment, frustration, a lack of forgiveness, a lack of joy, maybe just a lack of optimism or hope, a lack of peace, a lack of belonging, this is an invitation in Ezra and Nehemiah to homecoming, to restored rest and restored comfort. 
through the presence of God. So I want to read to you the entirety of chapter 2, including the very last verse, the last half of the last verse of chapter 1, and then we'll skim through chapter 3 together. So beginning in the last phrase, which is the, kind of the last portion of chapter 1, an introduction to who Nehemiah is, and then you'll hear more about what he's doing. As he is in chapter 1, we saw last week, spent four months praying and fasting and longing that God would renew the people in Jerusalem that were, as he could see, left desolate. He was heartbroken. He wept and prayed and fasted. And so we're introduced to this man that God uses to bring about renewal. The last phrase, now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Hang on just a minute, one minute. Uh, the paraphrase for that would be this, right? At some point around April, some day around April, four months later from chapter 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? Seeing you are not sick, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked. For the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat, and, or Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but 
There was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the woods that the king had spoken to, the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper. And we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right, or claim in Jerusalem. Now I want you to skim with me over the third chapter, a, a list of the people who rebuild, build, and repair. Beginning, then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers and priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. Look at verse 3. The sons of Hasanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hazak, repaired. Verse 6, Joyada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodeah, repaired the gate of Yeshanah. Skip down to verse 13, the next section. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zanoah repaired the valley gate. Verse 14, Malkijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hacherim, repaired the dung gate. Verse 15, and Shalom, the son of Kol Hose, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, its bars. He built the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. Let's skip to the last section of verse 28. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. Last very, very last verse in the chapter 3, verse 32. And between the upper chambers of the corner of the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants did what? Repaired. Chapter 1 begins to introduce us to God's chosen servant. A chosen servant that God would use and begins by first breaking his heart for that which broke the heart of God. In Matthew chapter 23, we see Jesus looking over the city of Jerusalem and crying out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again 
until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We're introduced to Nehemiah, and in these few chapters, we find out that the Lord rebuilds his people through the work of his chosen servant, Nehemiah. I want to point out to you two things, I believe, two parts, I believe, we see in these two chapters. And the first chapter, we get even a, a deeper glimpse into God's chosen person, that is Nehemiah, and how God uses people like this to serve and deliver his people. We get to see his petition and even his planning. And in the third chapter, we begin to understand and get introduced to not just Nehemiah, but the God of Nehemiah. And we see how the planning and deployment for rebuilding is executed. So there you, get, you have it. There's a, a prayer and planning, and then there's a deployment and rebuilding or repairing. And through this, I think we're introduced to what Nehemiah is like. And so doing, I think we're introduced to what it looks like to, to participate in calling others into an, a movement of renewal. But in the second half of this, in chapter 3, we're introduced to the very character of God and what a movement of his people for renewal looks like. I use that word renewal and will continue to use it because it is the word that you see and theme that you see in Ezra and Nehemiah. In any practical sense, even, I believe as a church, if you're a guest with us this morning, you're, you're, you're joining us on a Sunday in the middle of a time where we as a church are in a new season. We're, we're getting comfortable in a new building. As God has continued to bless us and as we're, we're called to steward people that he has entrusted to our care through the grace of God and the good news of Jesus, that we're in a new season. And in many ways, we can't go back. But even in the last year and a half, I think many of you probably would have a, a sense of resonation in your own heart with what Ezra and Nehemiah and the people were experiencing. Namely, a new season as they returned to Jerusalem and they found that things were not like they used to be. God was moving, God had done something, but the fact remained, a sad reality was before them and they weren't going to be able to go back. Things would never be the same again. And many of us, whether we're able to articulate that or not, are feeling the weight of that right now. A sense that we've gone through something. Now, now I want to encourage you, this isn't new. Every few generations, this happens. Culture shifts, uh, like, and, and you know, it shifts through all sorts of different means. Uh, for us, it's shifted through different social movements paired with, a, holy smokes, a, a, a pandemic, Right? And all these things are pressed into one. But again, before you, before you lament that as a way of thinking that we're somehow special, this always happens every few generations. It happens in the past through world wars or through mass migration across the globe or even just through the, the revolution of discovering that the earth is round and the sun doesn't revolve around it. I know that might be controversial for some of you. Just give me grace. It changed the world. And so they see the disrepair. And God, loving his people, doesn't want to leave them that way. But that picture of disrepair is something that we see elsewhere. This, this picture of a wall is, is, is nothing new. I even commend this to you. There's several verses about this, but Proverbs 25 speaks about the wisdom of a man without self-control who is like a city that's broken into, in what? 
left without walls. And that theme of, of disrepair, that theme that things are broken, that sin and its effects are pervasive and have destroyed almost everything, you'll find, and yet this, the theme in response for Ezra and Nehemiah is that God works to renew and revive his people even amidst opposition. So we get to meet God, we get to meet God's people here in chapter 3, and then, and then we get to meet God's leader. Up to this point, Nehemiah has prayed. That has been his first step, and you even saw it again. Did you, did you catch that the minute that the king asked him, what is it that you want? Did you, his first response was terror. He knew what that might cost. The second response, though, okay, what are you asking? What does he do? He says, he, it says that he stopped for a moment and he prayed. That's especially important because up to this point, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, one of the most, uh, the most important factors that we see here and the most impressive characteristics of Nehemiah is that he was a man of prayer. In fact, there are at least 10 prayers over the course of Nehemiah. In many ways, the book of Nehemiah is simply a story about prayer. And I commend it to you as such, that our faith might do this. And, and, and it turns some certain things on their head. We often, in the life of faith, might even speak of prayer like this, Things become so desperate that we say something like, all we can do now is pray. Think about that. That's that's as if to say, we have all sorts of things we can do. There's all sorts of things we have power over. But now, man, all we have now to do is to leave it up to God. Someone who's in really desperate straits will say, this person doesn't have a prayer. As if to say, that's the last, that's the last thing you have. Now, certainly there's a, a sense in which that's true. But that's more of a statement about our flawed and sinful view of prayer than it is about the nature of God and the gift and grace of prayer. Because what you find if you're in that position is that when all you have left to do, as far as you can tell, is pray and depend on God, a, a stunning revelation happens. That was all you had to begin with. You just were blind to it. You just were trusting in other things until you realized those things were going to fail at some point or another. But Nehemiah led by serving God, and one of the first things he does is he, he responds in prayer. As if to say that if we're going to be a part of an act of renewal, the first posture we must assume is a posture of dependence and trust on God. I shared with you last week is the last phrase we were introduced to Nehemiah is that he was a cupbearer to the king. And I encourage you to, to begin to pray about how the Lord might have strategically deployed you to bring about renewal and rejuvenation wherever you are. That wherever God has placed you is not an accident. I know it's not the place you would have picked. I know it wasn't on your top ten list. And yet, the great move of renewal results when we begin to understand that God's placed us there for a purpose. The second thing he does is he feels the weight of sin, takes responsibility for it. He leads people in confession. But then he responds after calling out to God in action. And that's what we find here in chapter 2. So in this first little bit, we're introduced to Nehemiah. And the purpose that God uses Nehemiah to bring about with his people. Now, I shared with you the theme of Ezra and Nehemiah, in many ways the theme of the Old Testament, is that God has a distinct purpose for his people. And God is going to bring about and create a, a distinct people, in a distinct place even in this case, with a distinct purpose. Separated, that, that is. Distinct, separate, not like the places around them. And in fact, in, I mean, in the, I, I hate when people use the word literal, but I'm going to use it as classically as possible. 
he is literally leading a move to build walls. That is, to separate, to create a distinction around God's people and the world. Because ultimately, he's showing that renewal includes for us that we have a growing distinction. A growing distinction between what it means to be God's people called for his purposes and the world. So, there are multiple reports up to this point, right? First, there were two reports in chapter 1. There are two reports here. The reports of what was happening. You saw the report of how things were going that came to Nehemiah, and then a report of what was happening that even spread to Led to, it spread and led to opposition. So we're introduced to Nehemiah first. Now think of it this way. Ezra was a priest, and he was of a priestly class. Well, we don't get to know anybody other than Nehemiah's father. And yet, Nehemiah was both, and I want to contend for you, careful, mindful, and courageous. He was both. So he was the cupbearer to the king, and it was his job to bring wine and, and, and select and, and take care of the supply of wine and food for the king. And yet at the same time, he was serving a king at this particular time, right? Uh, there were no sniper rifles at this particular time. If you wanted to kill a king, one of the sneakier ways to do it would be to poison him. And so the king hires someone, in that sense, who is expendable, um, and, and maybe just a little bit crazy, right, to, to test the food. Hey, you drink it. You look good. Okay, I'll, I'll drink it. And so if you think of it this way, he's like half foodie, half skydiver. Right? And don't get me wrong. It's very important, as we see here, to have a happy face if you're doing those two things. Right? Don't, this is just side side wisdom here. Don't trust anyone who cooks food for you and like Nehemiah brings it to you and is sad. Like, hey, what do you have for us? Uh, uh, right? There's, you'd be like, well, okay. Right? Especially if you're like, hey, we're going skydiving today. And then the guy leading you in skydiving is like, maybe. <laughs> I guess. Right? Go somewhere else. Right? Go rethink your, rethink your life. Right? Don't ever eat or skydive with a person who isn't convincing in their demeanor, right? And then the king notices. The king notices this, and we're introduced to the character of Nehemiah. The king notices. And then he has an audience with a king, a pagan, godless king. So we're already, in, we're already introduced to things, I think, that are components of renewal that you and I have to take serious in modern times. That for Nehemiah, the life of faith included careful and courageous action over an extended period of time. He had proven himself to a godless king, a pagan authority, that he could be trusted. So much so that when he was upset, the king actually noticed now, we see this in the book of Acts, that we are called to, in this, in this sense, like live in a way, Thessalonians tells us to live a quiet life, right? The book of Romans says that we submit to authorities, not because, that they're, not because they're sovereign and supreme, but because a time will come when you will stand before pagan king. You will have to appeal to those in power, and they will have to notice 
So ask yourself this, for the life of faith and even Christians, if Christians looked upset right now and appealed to political powers, would anyone be surprised? If a Christian made an appeal to people in political power and demanded or asked for something, would anyone be shocked? Right? Would they say, well, my, you've, you've never been upset about anything before. You've led such a, like the Thessalonians, you've led such a quiet life. There must be something wrong. You must be really, so, you must be sorrowful in heart, right? You've always been a faithful, joyful presence. What's wrong? Think of it this way. Is it possible that, like Nehemiah, we might be serving in the world so joyfully that they benefit from it, or even kept alive by it, even saved by it, such that they're shocked when we're upset? My guess is no. And so for us to experience renewal, a rejuvenating presence of God starts with very boring, very unimpressive faithfulness, in the presence of others. It's an ingredient for renewal. God will use you to win others over. That's his plan. That's how it works. Now, here's the thing. I think people who are most vocal in some of these areas, they might have godly concerns. But I contend to you, I've been a little bit skeptical because they use ungodly methods. So, in this sense, people often think of faith as an expression of moral superiority over the people around them rather than an invitation to testify to God's goodness. So friend, you and I are invited to live in the world in such a way that when we appeal based on what God has set in our hearts to do, people actually listen. People are there, oh my goodness. You've, you've only served. You've only, been, you've only served us. You've only blessed us. Now that you're asking for something, man, this must be a big deal. So in that sense, Nehemiah starts to show us what an act of renewal orchestrated by God will look like. It will look like people like you and me, nobodies, with no particularly priestly or notable lineage, but people who really believe that we are called to whether we eat or drink, Whatever we do, we do all for the glory of God. That whatever we do, like Paul tells the Colossians, we do as unto the Lord. So, think of it this way. He kind of gives us a picture. He, he goes in, takes up the wine, gives it to the king, and, and he says, I had not been sad in his presence. You hear that? It demonstrated a joyful faithfulness, a joyful, distinct sense of purpose and calling in his life, such that the king says, why are you sad? This must, be, like, this must be something in the depths of your own heart. And he was afraid to even say it. So, again, think about your relationship with your boss, right? And think about, think about what happens here. He basically asks for an undetermined time off, like a sabbatical, maybe even more than a year long, right? Just stop for a minute, put it in real terms. What would it take for you to do that, right? Like, like how much leverage would you have to have built up? How much like social and emotional and relational capital would you have had to build up so that you can say to your boss, hey, uh, you know, in sadness, man, I'm really sad. Can I just, can you let me, can, like, can you pay for me to go for like, I don't know, a year? 
And he, and he, and this is interesting, he does it in front of the queen, right? Like, that's something. Like, I think that's this little, this little indicator. Like, if you're going to defame a guy, don't probably wouldn't want to do it in front of his wife, right? And yet, he, he makes this request, and even the queen is like, man, you know, like, you've kept us from being poisoned to death all this time. Why wouldn't we? But then they, they're quick to say, well, so who, well, when are you coming back, right? When, when, how long will you be gone, it says in verse 6. So the other thing you, you see here, I think, is like this picture of this prayer and preparation that takes place. The prayer combined with planning and preparation. Now, I wanted to find another word that didn't start with a P, looked on thesaurus, looked up in a thesaurus to help. Almost every commentarian talks about these two movements going on in these passages here, the prayer of Nehemiah and the planning of Nehemiah. It's a helpful, I think, a guide for us to experience renewal. Because I think we probably tend towards one or the other, right? And so just ask yourself, if we want to experience renewal, new life in this, there's probably a component here that the Lord might, might add to you. And it's, it's, it's a simple, right? Do you tend to be the person who's like prayerful, dependent upon God, even to the point where you don't really care or make plans? You're not careful, kind of apathetic? Or are you the kind of person who's like, you've got so many plans that they're so good, you don't even need to ask God for help. Right? I'm on this side. I've got, you know, I'm just waiting for someone to ask me, hey, what, hey, what do you think we should do before they're done? Ah, let me tell you, right? And so for me, the, the, the rebuke here of Nehemiah is like, the planning that took place here was preceded by extensive, four months, four months had passed since he wept or since he became aware of of the brokenness of Jerusalem. He wept for four months and he fasted and he prayed. And so that for me is an invitation. Like, is this something you've really committed to the Lord or is this something that you think you can do on your own? And so for the, maybe the rest of you, though, maybe your temptation is to like, yeah, I don't really need to make plans. The Lord's going to like work it out, right? I don't need to worry about it. Things are going to work out on their own. And, and we find here a rebuke for a whole chapter and a half. There was a plan. Nehemiah wasn't just praying that the king would hear his, hear his request and grant his favor, we see at the end of chapter 1 and verse 11. He was also preparing for God to answer that prayer with planning. And so that's what an act of renewal is for us. We talk about this all the time. We pray, uh, we pray that the Lord would, Lord would increase our number as a church and our influence in the city so that the gospel would go out. But just, just stop for one minute. What if God actually answered that prayer? What if an extra 100 people showed up this morning and wanted to hear the gospel, believe, become members of this church, and be discipled by you? What would you do? Are you ready? Have you made some spare time in your life for when God actually does the thing you've asked for? And so we're called to not only pray and depend, but to plan to make arrangements. If we really want this to happen, right? Just, I mean, think even practically when I ask, like, what's the place where you want renewal? Are you ready? Are you ready to contain it? Are you, are you ready to make room for it? Because Nehemiah says an act of renewal here by God is shown in both. A prayerful dependence, but an expectation like, hey, I've got a plan. Should the Lord answer this prayer? I, I've, here, I've got a, here you go. Like, let me, let me forward this to you. Let me email this to you. I've been working on it for four months. But he's afraid. 
and then he prays again, such that he has the, he has the relational capital to ask his boss for a year off, a sabbatical, in which he can go and lead a, an act of rebuilding and renewal in his home city, the place where his, he says his fathers were buried, right? But then you see what happens next, and we're introduced to another aspect of the character of Nehemiah. You see it twice in the reading that we just did, but you're going to see it multiple times more. Did you hear it? Opposition. The minute the king, right, the, the very, very last part of that passage, verse 8, the king granted everything he asked, right? I love that. It's like, hey, king, can I go for a year? Can you fund my, you know, excursion for a year? Yes. By the way, can you, can you send me with a motorcade? Like, can you send me with all the papers I need to get where I'm going? And he's like, sure, fine, take it, right? Comes with a, he goes with army and horsemen, right? Like this Nehemiah goes back home to Jerusalem, he's like, he's in a motorcade, right? He's in, a, he's in the big car in the middle, and there's like a military escort before, before him and behind him, right? And then again, he's like, oh, and by the way, just so you know, we're going to need to do, we're going to need to build a lot. Can you, can you tell Asaph to give me all the wood I need in his forest? And every single one of the requests, God miraculously works in the heart of this pagan king, and he's like, yeah, you bet, absolutely, whatever you need. But the minute that happens... Verse 10, you also see it in verse 19. Look at, the, look at the first word that begins both verse 10 and verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard, verse 19, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshen the Arab heard, did you, did you get that? When word got out that something was happening, it was only a matter of time before the haters showed up. It was only a matter of time before opposition happens. Now, here, here's what I want to tell you about that. As we, as a church, pray for renewal in a new season, it, it is foolish and naive to think that the enemy will, will not oppose the work of God in your life and mine. In fact, that's the story of the entirety of the Bible, how God brings life and the enemy comes along and wants to snuff it out, wants to rob it, destroy it, steal it. And so what's distinctly, like distinctly visible here is the way that the people of God see that, know that, understand that, and even expect it. So whatever act of, like remember that place that you're praying for, God to bring you renewal in your marriage and your friendships and relationships and in the church, in the city, in your neighborhood, like wherever that is, right now just stop for a moment and, and if possible think about if you were the enemy and you wanted to stop renewal from coming to that place, what would you do? How would you snuff it out? <laughs> Who would you send? <laughs> the people are displeased. They want to, for some reason, maintain the status quo. Think of it this way. They want to benefit from the problems that Jerusalem was feeling. It says in verse 10, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. For Christians, this is not a surprise, but I want to invite you, if you're not a Christian, I'm so grateful you're here. In many ways, we exist for you. We love you. We're so grateful for you. If you have questions about who God is, then this is a place and a people that you can, can ask those things freely. Skeptics are welcome in this. If you ever wonder to yourself why things are awful and why things are so bad, Christians have a few different answers, and one of them is that sin is grotesque, and, and the effects of sin are pervasive. They cover everything. There's, there's no part of the created order that isn't somehow marred by sin. 
And in it, death is visible. But one of the other awful things that we know is that people actually desire to benefit from it. You see this in the New Testament when churches are planted that local, like, right, remember these stories about Thessalonica and about Philippi? Like, riots started because when people started believing in Jesus, they put all the sinful, uh, the sinful industries out of business. They started a riot, wanted to throw Paul and everyone else out. Same thing here. For whatever reason, these people felt threatened that the welfare of the people of Israel should be taken seriously. Now, we don't know what it is. In in many ways, we don't ever know what it is. But all we know here in verse 10 is that there was something about the welfare of the people of Israel that as long as it was ignored, as long as the, the place was in ruins, these people were happy and comfortable. And yet, if they were to experience renewal and rebuilding and repair, that was going to unsettle them in some way. And so just understand, we'll find this, this is, the, this is the opposition that comes from the outside. We'll see in chapter 5 and in the last chapters of Nehemiah, the opposition that comes from inside, the very heart of God's people. But you see it here, there are people who actually want to benefit, benefit from sin. They want to profit off of destroying people. Now maybe you don't readily have people who come to mind when you think of that. I'd love to share with you more personally about that. But just beware, Nehemiah tells us, in the act of renewal, there are some people who will benefit off of you not experiencing an outpouring of God's presence in your life. And they'll push back against it. Then you get to this picture of of repair that's begun by Nehemiah. I want to draw just close attention to this for just a moment, but you notice he went out with a small group of people, and then we're not really sure the language is is kind of unclear, but then it looks like he went out by himself. Did you catch that? For multiple days, he just went and surveyed. Before he told anything about, before he told anyone else about anything that that God had planted in his heart to do, he went and he just surveyed the damage. He surveyed the place that he'd been praying for. He surveyed to plan and prepare for what would come next. I think what we see there, and as we think about what it, what it means to, to lead a movement of renewal, you can expect loneliness. You won't end in loneliness, but expect the call of God on your life to experience renewal and to lead others to experience renewal will be a lonely journey. And I want you to know that in many ways you look like Jesus when you experience that. Right? So if, if you find yourself going like, does anybody care that this is broken? Right? Does anybody care that this doesn't work? Does anybody care? Like, there's a sense in which, at first, no, not really, just you and the Holy Spirit. And Nehemiah says, that's enough. That's enough. So, as soon as he grips you with that concern, then, then he equips you to deploy. And that's what happens as he, as he experiences opposition from those people. He just says, look, you will have no part in this. You will have no part in this renewal. In many ways, you'll be outside the wall. And then what happens is we're introduced to God in chapter 3. And a list, a litany. Now, I wrote down the numbers here so that I wouldn't like, miss this. Just remember, repetition is a grace. Uh, repetition is, is a way of saying, I know you're prone to forget this. I'm going to remind you. The word built shows up at least three times in chapter 3. The word rebuilt shows up in chapter 3 at least five times. The word repair shows up at least 38 times in those 32 verses. So if you were to guess, 
What is it that Nehemiah is calling God's people to do? I think he's telling us that the minute you stop rebuilding and repairing, God stops renewing. The beauty that we see, the character of God, is that God actually cares. God actually, I love this part about it. Nehemiah doesn't even include his own name in the list of rebuilders. Did you notice that? (laughs) As if to say, God's called me to lead this. God calls me to be a part of this. But in the end, if God doesn't work in these people to take ownership over what's broken and rebuild and repair, then this won't happen. Now, this is interesting for me. The repetition of this word is important. I get really frustrated when things break. Um, I, I can't stand it. It drives me nuts. But here's why. It's because I regularly underestimate and minimize sin and its effects. I regularly think that sin is not that bad and its effects are not that comprehensive. And so when things break and things blow up, I'm one of the first people like, what? Does nothing last? Right? Do you, do, you hear, do, you, do you hear the assumption in that? Regularly think that this, like, this life is going to give me all I need. This life is going to give me what I can trust in. And the repetition of the word repair is meant to be a call for us to stop trusting in the permanence of earthly things, even if they're good. And then the litany, right? Did you catch that? It's, I mean, I... This is, this is where, I, I don't mind saying this, but like the repetitive, and I, I'll say this like graciously, this is, this is more about my own impatience, but I think you might probably relate with it. The, the boring nature of that chapter, how long and repetitive it is, is actually its message. That is that the most repetitive and predictable nature of life in this world for you and I in a life of faith is that we're on a mission to repair. Until Jesus comes back and makes all things new, we will be repairing. We will constantly be seeing what is broken, and we will constantly be advocating for the work of God to renew. So let me give you two application points from from chapter 2 and chapter 3 here about Nehemiah and about who God is. The first, I think, is that we will have a witness before kings. The Lord will give you an opportunity to appeal We will stand before people who do not know and trust God. And there will be something that the Lord will use to compel and persuade and win them over. And so for you and I, here's how we do that. Do you know how he was terrified, right, before the king? And he prayed before the king. And this is all I know to tell you. For many of you, like, you were called to share your faith, to share your story of how God saved you, that you you were lost and broken and dead in sin, and God redeemed you in Christ, pulled you out of the grave. And that story is unique. It's unique to you. It's not the same as anyone else around you. And God has entrusted that to you, just like he entrusted a cup-bearing role to uh, to, to Nehemiah, has entrusted it to you to, in normal and predictable ways, go and share that story of grace with others. And that, in right now, I think probably terrifies you. Well, first of all, commit the next four months to weeping, praying, and fasting, and you'll get better, right? But how could he boldly appeal to this person, knowing he might lose his life over it? He didn't have any problem talking to the king because he had spent four months talking to the king of kings. And so, In an act of renewal, you and I are called to declare the goodness of God to our city. And the only way we're going to be able to do that fearlessly 
as if we've been our knees and met the God of the universe. Right, right. We see this throughout the New Testament, but Hebrews says it the most painfully two different times. Like, it is a, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a, of a holy God. Later, the writer of Hebrews says, God is a consuming fire. Well, here's the thing. When you've stood in the presence of a consuming fire, a God that by his right and goodness should destroy you, and he gives you mercy, there's really nothing else the rest of the world can do to scare you. What are they going to do? Fire you? Oh, at least they didn't consume you with fire, right? Do you get the idea? Like, there's nothing, there's nothing the world can do. There's nothing. There's no weapon formed against us that can prosper. The ones that are with us are greater than the ones that are with them. And so the way that we're called to appeal for an act of renewal in ourselves and others is courageously and carefully, but because we've spent so much time before God. This is the story of the Bible, right? Isn't this the story of Joseph, right? Appealing, appealing to Pharaoh. Isn't this the story of Moses, Appealing to Pharaoh as well. It's the story of Daniel. Appealing to the king. It's the story of Esther. Like, man, if I go in there, they kill me, they kill me. What are they going to do, right? I can either obey God or, you know, or not. So this is what Paul does before Felix and Festus, and even in Rome. So see the significance. He's proven himself to those people in joy and faithfulness, such that when he appealed to them, they listened. The Lord used him to rebuild. Here's the second thing I think we see. We have a reparation ministry in this world. There will be no place that you and I encounter that isn't marred by sin. But rest assured, we have the very presence of God to bring renewal. 2 Corinthians 5 says it this way, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. You hear it? You hear that language of rebuilding, refurbishing? Right? It's a, it's a good thing. Right? Because if something breaks... Somebody might be able to repair it, but one of the best things you can do is you can send it to the factory that manufactured it because they actually know how to refurbish the thing because they built it in the first place. And so we look to God because he created us in the first place. He knows how to make, he made us the first time. He knows how to make us new, new creation. Now the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this now is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Hear Nehemiah say the, the ministry of building, the ministry of rebuilding, the ministry of repairing. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Amen. And entrusting to us the message of that reconciliation. The good news that God is not counting his sins against us because of Christ is the ministry of repairing and restoration that you have been given. Therefore, then, and I love this language, we are ambassadors for Christ. Ask yourself for just a moment as we think about Nehemiah, how does one become an ambassador? Get it? At this particular time, you would have had, you had have to have been appointed by a king. Nehemiah was appointed by a king. But as far as everyone else was concerned, it wasn't the king that everyone else thought it was. We implore you then on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And friend, if you're not a believer in this room, I want you to be reconciled to God. And here's how. For our sake. Fallen, broken, dead sinners. He made him, that is the perfect, righteous Son of God, Jesus, to be sin, even though he knew no sin. So that in him, that is in Christ, we would become the very righteousness of God. You see it? The Lord rebuilds his people through the work of his chosen servant, Nehemiah. That's just how God works. And for us, 
Nehemiah points us to a leader that is to come, a chosen servant that is to come. The Lord rebuilds his people through the work of his chosen servant. (laughs) Jesus! And because he's reconciled, rebuilt, repaired, restored us, he has now given us the impetus and an emboldening power to go and be ministers of restoration elsewhere. We're on a ministry of repairing. 38 times. In case you were like, well, I don't know. 38 times. And it's specific in chapter 3, isn't it? And so here, I want to say thank you, and I want to call you to action. One, I want to say thank you. Everything, everything that's good about my life uh, has come because someone like Nehemiah prayed for it and prayed for me and then came to repair, right? <laughs> like one of my own, my, my own like personal calling is to see, like, I, I want to I see the gospel saturate every broken thing. That any broken thing I see in the world, I, I take it as an invitation to bring the hope of the gospel. And my life has hope in broken places because people were faithful. Many of those even are in this room. Every blessing that our church has received, every good act of renewal, every, every good and beautiful thing that God has given us has come through people in this room who have seen what's broken and instead of being disgusted by it, they move toward it in love. To serve to be a minister of reconciliation, to bring the gospel of God's reconciling work in Christ to bear on broken places and broken people. But here's the exhortation that comes with it. Because Christ has done that for you, he has come to the depths of our brokenness to repair and rebuild and renew and restore. Now you and I are joining him in this great act of restoration and renewal. After all, that's what the story of Ezra and Nehemiah is. You're going to hear me say this more and more as we get closer to the end of this. The first thing that gets rebuilt in Ezra is an altar. And the New Testament tells us in Romans 12.1 that now because of Christ, we are living sacrifices, holy and pleasing and acceptable to God. Then they rebuild the temple. And in the same way that in Christ, we're now the altar and sacrifice The same thing is true for us that since Christ is the presence of God and earth so much that the temple that they rebuilt was, right, they hung, I love it, somebody hung a veil in that temple and they had no idea Jesus was going to come along 400 years later and just rip it in half to show that God is now present with us in Christ and now us, we are the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6 says, "You you are the temple of the Spirit of God. And then lastly, they're rebuilding a city here In Christ now, we're the city of God. Revelation 21, verse 3 tells us that the city of God, the people of God, is now a bride of Christ that's made holy, beautiful. It's like jewels. It's so perfect. Christ has done this for us, and now we're implored to be a part of a ministry of reparation everywhere we go. Some of you are called to build relationships where they currently don't exist. Some of you are called, I don't want, you to, I don't want to diminish, some, some right now you're rebuilding marriages. You're rebuilding your marriage. Some of you are repairing friendships or relationships that are broken. Some of you are repairing neighborhoods. By God's grace, we as a church are repairing broken things in the city. Many of you are repairing, you're repairing things that were, that were harmed even by your own sin or, or repairing relationships that were broken by others. I want to encourage you you look a lot like a renewing work of God when you do that. 
you look a lot like an ambassador when you see what's broken in the world and you move towards it with the hope that God will come and make all things new in Christ. Friend, keep up the good work. On one hand, because as long as we're in this life before Jesus comes back, that will be our work. But it is a good work because it is the work that God has done for us in Christ. Let's pray together. Let's thank God for that. Let's look to him for a renewal. God, we thank you that we have Nehemiah, a humble example of a person who simply leveraged his own calling and placement for your glory. I thank you that he serves for us as an example of, of in many ways, of what we're called to be. But I especially thank you that he serves as an example of the one that was to come, that is Jesus, with the power and purpose of God to make distinct and holy his people. Thank you that that mission granted to Jesus, just like that mission granted to Nehemiah, was accomplished. Lord, we long to experience renewal, and if there's some in this room maybe now that they, would, they wouldn't call you Lord or Savior, maybe today would be the day that you, that you begin to open their eyes and imagination to consider the possibility that Jesus is the solution to what's broken. Lord, we have feel the effects of sin. There are so many things in our lives that we wish you would repair. Would you renew us? Would you renew us such that we begin to experience renewal in each of these areas? Lord, make us a repairing ministry just like Christ was for us. Make us a rebuilding ministry just like Christ was for us. Father, get all the glory and give us all the joy you have coming to us by making all things new. By your chosen servant leading us to be ambassadors for the grace that we've received. Thank you for that grace in Jesus' name. Amen.